I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Our guest today is Chris Milgate, outdoor journalist and owner of Tightline Media. We're talking about her latest film on grizzly ground. Peter, it's grizzlies. You know something about grizzlies. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, We've yeah. cleaned up some grizzly messes before. What's the name of your grizzly at uh, We've got two. We have Stripes, Stripes. who's... Uh, an old timer, and we've got a younger one, Shoni, who actually came to us as a nuisance bear. So she was from the Shoshone National Forest there in Wyoming. Right, and uh, a declared nuisance bear. We'll get into this, but yeah. um, not so uh, at the zoo. No, because she's behind a fence, a nice big strong <laughs> fence. Very good. Well, we'll get into uh, all all things bear today. Uh, yeah. But before we get there, you've got nature in the news. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about a uh, pathogenic. Fungi, oh, like, like Cryptococcus. Who, who doesn't like a good old pathogenic De- fungi? I know, not so fun. But you know, these these are funguses that can cause disease in in animals and plants sure. and humans. So, um, and actually, fungal infections kill more people each year than either tuber- tuberculosis or malaria combined. So it's they can be tough, uh, but for the most part. Uh, a healthy human doesn't need to worry about it. You know, and it's mainly because our internal body temperature is a little bit too hot for these spores to really do much. But if you're immunocompromised, that that can lead to um, some trouble. Right. However, that might be changing. Oh, tell us. You know, tell and, us the good news, and Peter. <laughs> there, there's a good chance that we could thank climate change for oh, no. this, but we, you know, it's, we don't know yet. But there's a new study out of Duke University School of Medicine that has found that raised temperatures in Cryptococcus um, can get them really excited about mutations. Oh. Yes. So there is these uh, this element they're called transposable elements or jumping genes, which is DNA that kind of jumps along the genome. And it, it really is kind of one of the main causes for genetic mutations. And as cryptococcus has been exposed to more heat, higher temperatures, they're actually able to kind of uh, it, it excites these jumping genes. And so they've started to mutate, and they're they're handling warmer and warmer temperatures. And um, if this happens, and they found this in 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 mice, in mice who have been infected by cryptococcus, and you know what we're running into is, you know, if we have significant enough mutations within, say, cryptococcus, what other pathogenic Fungi are, are leading, are getting these mutations as well, and our bodies might not be as well equipped to fight these uh, nasties off. Climate change affecting us very directly, right? By right. way of fungus, and and you know there is, and I I don't name, I don't know the name of the fungus, but there's that fungus that can cause create zombie ants. Oh, the zombie ants, yes, yeah. So everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite, yeah, yeah. So. These uh, sci-fi slash horror stories with zombies and other nasties might have the possibility of coming true. Yeah, and this is a, a pretty 
negative start to a morning show, Peter. Yeah, let's talk about grizzly bears. Let's talk then. about grizzlies. Hey, <laughs> trivia time. When were grizzlies listed under the Endangered Species Act? We are going to get to the answer to that question and so much more bear talk when we come after the break. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, we're back from the break. Our guest today is Chris Milgate. She's an outdoor journalist and owner of Tightline Media. Welcome back to The Nature of Idaho. Thank you for inviting me back. It's always fun to visit with you, too. Well, it's great to have you back. And I understand you got a new film about grizzlies and we're going to we're going to dig into that. But I figured we'd start with if you could tell us a little bit about your first earliest memory about grizzly bears. My first memory of grizzly bears happens in the predictable place that most people have their memories come from. And it's Yellowstone National Park. And I had my little boys with me and we always go in early. Uh, you know, early May, there's still snow on the ground and it's not as crazy crowded, but there's still bear jams. And because it's early in the season, there's a lot of winter kill, which is elk and moose and bison that died over the winter. Grizzly bears wake up, they want to eat those. And sows with cubs come out of hibernation last, which means they're coming out now and there's already been a few out that are males. So there was a mama bear with two cubs and there was still snow on the ground. They were eating an elk calf. Yeah, there was already an elk calf, or maybe it was just a regular elk, but they were eating an elk. And uh, the, there was another elk watching the whole thing go on, which was crazy to see happen. <laughs> and you had this dynamic happening in the natural world, which was wild animal eating another wild animal. And that's just how things go in the wild and that's how they sustain themselves. But all of this was unfolding pretty close to the road. And so my husband dropped me off so I could shoot footage. And then he went and parked and got far enough away from the bear jam that he could get the boys out and they could watch from where they were. And I sat with all the photographers and it was by the road. So what started happening is all the cars started collecting. They start seeing all these cameras and they want to stop. And it's not even necessarily because they saw the bear. They just know that something cool is going on. Right. So everyone stops to find out what's going on. It happens every time I try to shoot a, an old wildfire scar too. What turned crazy was all the people that showed up to look at the bear and to get pictures of the bear. And they didn't keep a distance from the bear. They weren't across the highway 
very, we were far away with long telephoto lenses, but everybody pulling up on the road, maybe even in the middle of the road, so they were blocking traffic, was just getting out with whatever they had. And it was probably their phone running to see this bear. And I remember shooting footage and I could see the ranger running. I could see the lady running and I could see the mama bear with his cubs eating this elk and scruffing around. And the lady is running so, so frantically, like she's not thinking and she's excited to experience the wild and she needs to get close to the wild because she's never seen it and she wants to take a picture with her phone. So she's gotta be close enough. And the ranger just yelling over and over and over again, lady in the purple pants, lady in the purple pants. And I'm thinking to myself, there's only one person out here in purple pants. How does she not know it's her that he's wanting to stop? <laughs> so my memory, first memory of grizzly bears is attached to the lady in the purple pants. <laughs> and when you watch that footage that I shot that day, you hear the ranger yelling that. You never see the purple pants because I'm focused on the bears, but you, the whole soundtrack is lady in the purple pants. <laughs> you know, I sit back and I think, at the zoo, and it's just not here, it's been my entire career, you'll have these big signs that say, please stay on this side of the barrier, and you've got a fence, and then you've got another fence. That's frustrating and hard enough for me to walk by, and you're like, didn't you see the sign? Use some common sense. How would you like to be that park ranger? <laughs> you know, it's it's. there's no barrier between a lot of people and a lot of cars, and a mom grizzly bear with her cubs eating a yummy elk lunch. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety at a jam, and uh, it's uncomfortable. Uh, I find that I, I'm not comfortable with a lot of things that I see happen at those. And you know what else freaks people? Well, this freaks people out at a bear jam for sure. And it's when I put my camera on the crowd instead of the bear. <laughs> you know, they're there to see the show. They don't want to be the show. But when I start turning my camera to show this crowd just consuming the area. <laughs> People don't really like that. They, they, they don't want to be on your lens. They just want to look at the same thing as you. You know, I, it's a fascinating book. It's a little morbid, but it's called Death in Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And it goes the the history of deaths in Yellowstone. And in the introduction, the author was speaking on that he thinks that Yellowstone should change its name from a national park because park has a kind of a pleasant, safe mm. connotation to national wilderness area right. because it truly is a wild area. These animals are in their house. This is their house. This is their natural habitat. You don't have to be there. They, they get to dictate what's going on. And you know what? There is a lot of poor decisions on humans' parts, not the animals' parts. And the animal is just trying to correct our bad behavior. And bad things can happen. I think, though, if you were to change from park to wilderness, you'd have a problem because we've made it people-friendly. We've put in boardwalks. When you're in the White Cloud Wilderness, there's no boardwalk. So there's a, big, there's a difference in, in the landscape now because we've made it user-friendly. Right. And, and and so there's this balance, right? Uh, I think people have uh, an innate desire to see the wild and are attracted 
to see that animal and to see it up close. And there's a voyeurism uh, but and an appreciation, right, for seeing those things, but also uh, uh, being disassociated with the consequences of being around really big predatory animals. Like, I, I think we're, we, we're too removed, perhaps, from the, the fear we should have of being that close to a situation like that. Yeah, I'd agree. I think the possibility of connecting with the wild overwhelms people that are so disconnected from it that when they get into viewing range of it, they just can't help but be drawn to it. And they just want to connect with what the natural offers us. And they don't realize how long they've been deprived of it until they have it right in front of their face. Well, and this is this is why, here's the magic segue, why you are so important. As the outdoor journalist, it's your camera that allows us to vicariously and safely, I will might add, get to observe up close what these animals are doing because you take the precautions and you know what you're doing and you can present uh, uh, stories, storylines that satisfy the needs and people to, to get closer and to, and to learn more about these animals. So tell us about, so On Grizzly Ground is the name of the new project. What, why did you start this project in the first place? On Grizzly Ground comes on the hills of Ocean to Idaho. And that was when I followed salmon migration, 850 miles from the ocean to Idaho. And we've talked about that before. And at the premiere of that film, the first question from the audience was, what's next? And I stood on the stage and I said, all I can tell you is what's next will not be fish. <laughs> That's and a great I, answer. answer. <laughs> you didn't tie right? yourself down to anything other than not fish. That's pretty good. You know, and I, I had an idea of where we were going to go, but I needed buy-in from frankly, from experts. I mean, it's my job to tell the story, but I need people like biologists to say, okay, this, you can do this. And I had to convince people in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that are considered the experts that I could pull this off without getting myself killed. And so it wasn't that I wanted to put myself in danger every day and I needed to see grizzlies every day. I knew I could tell the story without seeing grizzlies every day, but I did need to see them at some point. Once I finally figured out that it was going to be grizzlies, the timing of it was pretty perfect. I wanted to follow grizzlies through the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Grizzly bears are on the endangered species list. They've been federally protected for decades. And I wanted to show people where we, where we were a century ago when we were feeding bears in Yellowstone and where we are now, what's the difference, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. What are the helps? What are the hurdles? What is it like when the wild tries to make its way with us in the way? And these grizzly bears are making their way. They're expanding. They run into trouble more often, trouble being usually caused by us. And I just wanted to make people to see, let people see. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even realize that grizzly bears are recovered here. And they are, And but they're still protected for a lot of reasons. But there's gotta be this awareness that has to be raised. And it starts with simple things like, what you need to do with your cooler in camp. Some people don't know that. Bear spray shouldn't be in your backpack, it should be in your hand. People don't know that. So there's all these basics that we need to grow from. And I thought if I could follow grizzlies through the greater Yellowstone ecosystem for one summer, I could tell this story. And I didn't pick one specific bear, I picked hotspots for trouble all around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And then I built the story around that. And I shot it all in summer 2022. And I've spent all of winter with our nice long winter. <laughs> I've been I've been editing so that I would have a film for summer 2023. 
How many hours of footage did you have? This time I have about, uh, I, I'm going to estimate it's about 17 hours of footage right now. I shot a few less interviews. For Sam and I shot eight, 17 interviews. For Grizzlies, I shot 11. And I also changed um, my camera cubby. I added to it. So I usually work with five cameras in the field. And that's been the standard for quite a few years. That's my main video camera, my photo camera, my, my drone for aerials, my underwater camera, my phone for social media. That's five. I now have eight. I added three trail cameras for this project. And that indicates to you that I wanted to see what grizzly bears were doing when, when we were not around. And I needed a camera that could be there that would still record without me standing next to it. You know, and I, Chris, I, I want to point out two things. Um, one that Leaf said, and then you actually reconfirmed, you know, when he was talking about experts, um, you spent a lot of time with the experts around you to get this footage as safely as possible. So you weren't endangering yourself or the experts around you, and you weren't endangering the bears as well. And I, I think that's what people have to to remember is that you know you have to be aware and you have to spend the time and you have to do the research before you really go out and do a project like this or even if you're hiking through the Tetons if you're backpacking through the Tetons there are bears there there are grizzly bears and you have to make sure you're prepared and it's not just for your own safety but it's for the bear's safety as well yeah, the, the last thing you want at any point is to cause a situation where a bear has to be killed. And in particular, when I'm working on a project like this, the last thing I want is to create a problem. There's already enough problems. And for my sake, it's a PR nightmare. If one, I get hurt or killed by a bear, <laughs> it looks like I've been irresponsible. And the other thing would be is if a bear has to be killed because of a conflict with me, I don't want them eating my lunch. That's that's not how this should go. I don't want to do anything that makes them want to come to where I am. I want them to be where they are and stay where they are. And so there's a lot of things that go into planning a project like this, especially when you're dealing with an animal that can kill you. It's a lot different than salmon. I mean, salmon aren't going to kill me. <laughs> but uh, the, the possibility is always there with a bear. And so you have this in the back of your mind as you're working. And at the same time, it's very important for me to get the accurate, correct, factual information and the right perspectives on these issues. These are hot button issues that I deal with. And I need to hear from everybody. And I need to ask some questions that might be hard to answer. That takes a lot of development of a relationship to get people to sit down and tell me things that they may not want to tell me. So during this year with the project, is there one thing that you learned about the bears or the the folks around the grizzly bears that surprised you or you didn't know? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that I learned early on was from the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone and its bears in captivity. And that's where I learned the, the one thing that I think everybody's going to be able to attach to as this film comes out and we start talking more about grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone. And it's this, coolers come with uh, a logo on them that says they're certified 
bear resistant certified by the well, the bears that live at the discovery center they go through a rigorous testing process i went and watched that testing process it's hilarious and it's it's actually really fascinating they they put peanut butter and fish heads in the cooler and then they shut it and they shove it out where the <laughs> where the captive bears live and let them test it and they, if they can bite through it in 60 minutes that cooler fails and in the 90s 90 percent of the coolers failed so that's not a cooler you want in your camp but what i learned was we have all these coolers and we buy them and we go oh we're good the cooler has this little round logo with a grizzly bear in it that says bear resistant i'm good you're not good because there's actually holes drilled in the lid of that cooler that have to have padlocks put through them those don't come with a cooler. They have to have the padlock on them. It's not fair resistant until you put the padlock on. And I think so many people miss that. <laughs> you know, I'd probably recommend hanging it in a tree as well, because I mean, the two things that I've learned with grizzly bears and brown bears, they're really good at digging and they're really, really good at breaking things. <laughs> I, yeah, that's true. But I, the, the idea of having to hoist a full cooler, I, I can't imagine how hard it is. The pass rate on coolers now, um, so let's see, how did I say it before? 10% used to pass in the 90s. Now we're into the 2020s and 45% pass. Jeez. So, but that's still with those rubber latches ripped off and padlocks put on. <clears throat> You've got to have the padlocks. And I think that's the that's key that people aren't realizing a lot of times they're not even sold with the cooler anyway. So how would you know that's what that hole is for? So your project, uh, I imagine you got to see bears, obviously, on their terms in the wild, um, maybe at some distance. Did you ever get close to any bears? Yes, I did get close to wild bears, but it was in a controlled setting, as in the bear was trapped. The bear was given a shot of sleepy time tea, so he was passed out on the forest floor, and he was examined like at a doctor's office visit, you know, where they check your weight and check your teeth. And he was having a, a collar put on his neck and then he was released. So uh, I was that was the closest I was to a bear. Other than that, my footage that I have of bears in the wild is really um, luck of the draw, but with a little research. And uh, the first, I call them my missions. I did an exploratory mission while Ocean to Idaho was on tour that the summer of 2021, I went and I tried to get footage of bears and I said, let me just see what I can do just like a tourist does. They show up in Yellowstone or Grand Teton and maybe they're going to get lucky and see something. And I didn't, my first bear footage didn't even come from the park. It came from outside the park, but I got lucky. I drove around for 14 hours and got last light in the 15th hour. I got the best bear footage I'll have for the whole project. <laughs> and I was so glad I got it because I came back and I said to the biologist, look, I went and got this footage just like every other person can get it. No special treatment for Chris Mailgate because she's a journalist. I did it just like everyone else. I just went looking around and I got great footage. We can do this project without me getting in trouble with bears and causing problems. And then it, it flew from there. But the, the footage is funny because the cubs that I got, the day I shot a mom with cubs, they were really wound up. It was so fun to watch them and roll around in the snow and I mean, just, just doing all kinds of things that you start to think about them as a mom and kid, but they're still wild. But there's this one point where the baby bear stands up on its hind legs and it's got its 
arms over its head and he's waving them like a super fan at the football game, you know, <laughs> like, like making the wave at the whole, when the arena is sold out and he's covered in snow and he's got his paws up and, and he's just trying to keep his balance because he's got a new spine. But the way he's waving around was so amazing that I, I started to laugh and you can hear me kind of laugh and I'm trying to be quiet and not disturb him, but it's just hilarious to watch. And, and that's probably one of the, I'll never be able to, to top that one piece of video. That's great. And I think as you're describing it, we all know how charismatic bears are, especially cubs. And you had the equipment you weren't right next to him. You had Zooms and all that. It wasn't off of your phone. Again, I feel like we got to stress, you got to be safe. Grizzly bears right. <laughs> are, are they're apex predators for a reason. And, um, yeah, it's, it's so fun to see footage like that because they are wonderful animals and they deserve our respect. And I think the one thing about how I approach situations like that is I feel honored to be lucky enough to pick the right timing to actually see them come out of the shadows of the trees. And that's a, enough of a connection for me. I have no desire to step close. I have no desire to get in their space to interrupt what they're doing for the day. My best footage happens when the animals don't realize that I'm watching them and they don't change how they act. Now on a grizzly, they, especially a mama grizzly, they know when they're around people. And I think they do it to keep their babies away from male grizzlies. So she knows we're there, but I'm not interrupting the flow of their day in any way. I didn't ask that bear to stand up on cue and wave its cute little arms over its head. <laughs> I didn't ask that mom to roll it around in the snow underneath her legs. You know, those are all things that they would do whether or not I was standing there. And that's what I want. And I don't want to be any closer than, than I need to be. I can see it. I can connect with it. And it's so special to have it that the last thing I want to do is move in and interrupt it. Now, uh, before this, we were chatting a little bit. Was there an entry? Did you get an entry on this one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> go, go on. Do tell. Uh, so it's, a di it's an entry in a different way than you're thinking. But oh, okay. um, I work outside. I've worked outside for decades. I have always been good about sunscreen, I thought, but during the salmon migration, I lost part of my left ear to skin cancer. And during grizzly migration, I lost part of the right side of my face. And so I had stitches halfway through that um, when I was actually working in the Tetons, uh, they started to throb because I was up too high. And I had never had trouble at elevation, but it, it did kind of punch me in the gut because I had stitches in my face and uh, um, I had done two rounds of chemotherapy for multiple sclerosis. So my system was really shot and I was working at a higher elevation and I didn't expect those issues, but I had some. And the, the scar on my face has cleared up pretty good. I'm not hoping for any more skin cancer. I'm, I'm covered all the time now. And I wear sunscreen plus sleeves and hats and everything else you can imagine. But I was surprised to have another chunk of my face removed. <laughs> it's not fun. And that's self, that's my fault. I work outside. I didn't cover up good enough for 30 years. It's on me. So the challenge is working outside, right? <laughs> yes. <It's> as, <laughs> as glamorous as everyone thinks it is, there's some challenges for sure. 
So the project will uh, come out later this year. This is in 23 we're talking. I'm really stoked to see the, the, the full film once you have it all uh, compiled for us later later on. Okay, so we started off the, um, the show asking the question, trivia question, when were grizzlies listed under the Endangered Species Act? And when was that? Grizzlies were put under federal protection under the Endangered Species Act in 1975. I was two years old. And we know that Leaf wasn't born yet. I was just, I was in process, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I'm a 76 baby, so yeah, I didn't yeah. quite make it. Yeah, I was going to kindergarten. You're going to kindergarten. Oh. Yeah, totally. Oh. Man, <laughs> you make me feel so young. It's great. I love it. Oh, I'm glad I'm here to help, Leaf. So. Yeah, that's your job. <laughs> and you too, Chris. You know, I, you know, I hope you feel younger after this conversation as well. Well, I don't have a beard as long as you, so I think I'm already starting out like I'm younger. Yeah, ahead of the curve. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. Chris, we really want to thank you for joining us again on Nature of Idaho. And folks, if you want to learn a little bit more about her most recent project prior to its release, please go to ongrizzlyground.com. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University with editing and production done by Ricky Colapietro. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.